Bibles, I want you to turn there at 1 Samuel chapter number 1. I'm going to read a lot of scripture this morning, and then we're going to go back and talk about some of them. <clears throat> but as you can see, the first service didn't last for two hours, so I, this one won't last that long either. Look at verse number 1. The Bible says, Now there was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jerom, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, and he was an Ephrathite. It says, and he had two wives. <clears throat> the name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penei. And Penei had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and sacrifice unto the Lord <clears throat> of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And when the time was that Elkanah offered, <clears throat> he gave to his wife, or gave to Penia his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. Look what it says. He gave her portions. Verse 5. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had shut up her womb. And her adversary also provoked her sore for to make her fret, because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her, and therefore she, Hannah, wept and did not eat. Then said Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, or Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, why weepest thou? And why eatest thou not? And why is the heart grieved? Am I not better to thee than ten sons? And so Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh and after they had drunk. And now Eli, the priest, sat upon a seat by the post of the temple of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou will indeed, look at these words, look, on, look at how it's chosen to use here, the affliction, my suffering of thine handmaid, and remember me, and forget not thy handmaid, but will give unto thy, look at, again, handmaid, a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. Now we know according to this scripture, this is not talking about Brother Steve. In verse 12, And it came to pass, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli marked her mouth, that he, he, he watched her, and he looked at her lips. Now Hannah, she spake in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she had been drunken. And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be drunken? Put away thy wine from thee. And look at Hannah's response. And Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Could not thine handmaid for, count not thy handmaid for a daughter of Belial or a daughter of Satan. For out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hitherto. And Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked him. And look at these words. And she said, Let thine handmaid find grace in thy sight. So the woman went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. And they rose up in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to their house in Ra to Ramah. And it says, And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Wherefore it came to pass... When the time was come about after Hannah had conceived that she bare a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. If we look at this scripture this morning, there's, there's few things. And I tried to tell the, the first service this morning, and I know I say this a whole lot. I'm constantly saying I told them this and I tell y'all this. And I, don't, and I don't know why. Maybe it's a habit and I need to be broken of that. But constantly trying to remind you the same thing that I reminded them. Because each service, as they may be different, it's the same spirit of the Lord. And we're trying to share the same, same message with all of the congregation. <clears throat> One of the things that I kept reminding them is what I was telling you also earlier. Is that if we don't have the spirit of God that will show us what we need to see in this, we could really mess this story up. We could take this story and think that it's just a story, Brother Jack, that we get what we want when we ask it. And it's not what's going on here. Even in the story here, we see that there are some sinful things that happened. And we would think, well, maybe that's okay because there was no reprimand or any rebuking uh, to Elkanah for what he did. But we have to see that sometimes when we're looking at scriptures, there are fleshly things that we do that come out. There's realness of humanity that comes out in order for us to see <laughs> how great God is. 
I'm going to try my best to keep it all together today, but it's very difficult because my heart just kind of sometimes wants to explode. If you look at this, I promise you, just because we're putting it all in the same letter, just because we have PowerPoints, just because we put scriptures on there, that doesn't enhance or make any more uh, the message any more powerful than it already is that's found in the scripture. It's what the Spirit does within the scripture that teaches us, man, that's good. That's what I needed today. That's what God sent me today. And what's amazing about the Lord is that he will speak to you and he will speak to you, although you're both going through different things and you're both maybe traveling and it seems like in this kind of direction, God has a wonderful way, as me and Brother Brandon was talking about earlier, that when we speak the words of the Lord and we're following the leading of the Spirit, He will take care of it all and allow it to land where it needs to. That's what Isaiah said, where it says that His Word will come forth like the dew that waters the earth, amen, and it will bring forth what He needs. And so don't think that, oh, that, that, that's captivating because it's found this way. Just listen to the text more than anything. But the Bible says, let all things be done decently in order to. And that every word of God should be rightly divided by right, the word of truth, which is spirit. And so I want to show you just a few things this morning. Just because there's three or four of these things, it doesn't mean that it's any greater. But the first thing is this, that number one, there's no exemptions. When, when we're talking about this prayer, and, and even in the title of it all, uh, I get ahead of myself sometimes, but it's fine. What we're going to be talking about today is that a, a prayer without words. When you're praying and there's no words, you can't find the words, when even the words don't come out. And I want to show you that, first of all, in the Scriptures, is that there's no exemption. None of us are exempt. Even in the point where I was sharing and telling somebody, I've told a bunch of people this story, but my son, my oldest son, he was diagnosed with COVID back in the summertime, maybe June, July, and it ruined his vacation. He didn't get to go on the vacation he wanted to go on and stuff. And, and he had like symptoms for one day. I mean, seriously, he just said, my body is hurting, and he had like a small fever one day. And so that was on a Saturday when they said that he was. And so Patty, mom, kicked in, and mom's like, don't touch nothing, you're not going anywhere, and like gets this brown bottle of Lysol out. Lysol in the spray is okay, but there's this brown bottle they sell. It's like, it's like in the back of the shelves. It's called Concentrate. It's like what the hospitals use, and it smells horrible. And our clothes are washed in it. Our sheets are washed in it. I lay my head down at night, and I go, oh, my goodness. And, you know, and, and I gripe about it, and she's just going, I'm just trying to keep everybody healthy. You know? And I'm like, okay, I'm not mom. I don't get all of that stuff. You know? I'm the other guy. I'm like, if you go out and eat a couple of handfuls of dirt, you, know, you won't get sick is what I think. So I go on Monday and get tested for this thing, and I have a rapid test. And then I told the doctor, I said, I'm O negative type blood, right? And he said, yes, sir, according to the chart. And I was like, good. And I, was, I started swelling up a little bit in my mind, in my brain, you know. And I know we were talking about earlier, I, I'm, I'm always swollen a little bit anyway. But, uh, but I started getting the big head. And so I tested, and whenever they come back, that rapid test, I was negative. I went to where we, we drove, me and Andrew drove up to the lake, and Patty and them were there, and I walked in, and she said, what did they say? And I, was, I did my shirt like Superman, and I went, I have O negative type blood. I have super blood, and so I don't have it and all this. And two days later, God himself and the COVID virus showed me that I'm not exempt. No one is exempt. And we so, so much think that this will never happen. I can't tell you, after pastoring for 20 years now, in November, I've been hanging around here for 20 years, and I was ordained as a pastor like in March. But after hanging around this long, that I have noticed one thing is that no one is exempt. Man, I have stood by the hospital beds of people who they're joyous because a baby was just born, and they're on the fourth floor. And I've literally gotten on the elevator and gone up to the fifth floor and prayed beside the bed of someone who had been in cardiac arrest and who is fading now. And no one is exempt. No one is exempt. I have stood by the graveside of those who have lived a long, wonderful, and beautiful life. And I've stood by the graveside of caskets that were this small. I've stood by people who lost their son or their daughter in a horrible car accident and stuff. I've stood right here on this very stage and tried to preach one of my friends that fist bumped me before we were fist bumping nation. He fist bumped me every Sunday and I stood right here as his casket was there. None of us are exempt. None of us are exempt from sin. 
None of us, none of us are exempt from death, from, from troubles, from uh, trials and sufferings or anything like that. And the Bible says that this woman, that they, even in this people, these people that are found in the word of God, they weren't exempt either. Look at verse number one. The Bible says there was a certain man in Ramath, uh, uh, excuse me, Ramathium, Zophim, of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah. And look at, notice right here, and, and there's times where we look at this, and we, you ever get into the scripture where you go, and this guy begat this one, and he begat, and, and I love that word begat. He begat and begat and begat and begat, and then, after he had so many children, then he forgot and forgot and forgot everything he ever know. But it says that you have to look at these names. He was the son of Jerome, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth. He was an Ephrathite, and he had two wives. And it's kind of bringing this genealogy together. And God, Brother Jack, is telling us a story about this guy, Elkanah. Elkanah, Peniah, and Hannah are, are the main characters in this story today. And he's laying out all of this stuff. And if you look at it, it's teaching us about being a descendant of someone, being a descendant of the people of God. And the people that were before him were the patriarchs. And we know, according to Jesus in the New Testament, that they always loved looking at their genealogy. They loved it because it pointed them to the tribes in which they originated from. It pointed them that they knew what their jobs were, the, the the ones that were from the tribe of Judah, they knew that they were the kingly ones, you know, that they were going to be the kings of the nation, that, that no other tribe could have the kings come out of them except for them. And we know the tribe of Levi, the Levites, that the priesthood would come out of there because of Kohath, you know, and the Kohathites and all of these other people. And so they took pride in what portion that they got to do. It's much like in the church today. The way the church should function is that it should not be one singular person that's over everyone. It should be everyone working together while a pastor gets to be a disciple maker teacher and do these things and to be able to kind of semi shepherd the church because Jesus is the shepherd of the church then we have deacons and other people and, and lay pastors and other men and women that are in this church the women of God I'm telling you right now if it wasn't for some of the women of God at North Highland Baptist Church things would not get done and we have that blessing because what are we doing? We're working like a machine together. And now we see this man's heritage as he's coming down, and we have to remember it. But look immediately at verse number 2. The storyline kind of changes, especially for us in the United States and Christians today. Automatically it says, and he had two wives. Now we would assume that you would all know this today, that that's not right. It wasn't right to do that. Jesus told them, he said, that it was always in the beginning his father said that a man would leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and two shall be one. He said, it was because of Moses and the hardness of your heart that you have the decree of divorcement and that you have the decree of all these other things. Listen, it's not God saying that it's right for this man to have two wives. He's saying that God is merciful and God is gracious and that, listen, he just didn't get rid of immediately, but it doesn't mean that it's right. What's going on in the scripture, church, is we must understand that, listen, having two wives in the same household would be a crowd, right? Solomon having 700 would be a massacre. It would be horrible. And we call him the smartest man in the Bible? I don't think so. I don't think he was very smart, right? And, I'm not, and I don't have anything against my wife. I just understand that whenever we're in our home and you bring another wife or another husband into that home, you've created an absolute monster in that house. But there's a reason. We must continue to look at Scripture. We do not look at this Scripture and go, you know what, I don't want to hear about Elkanah. He was in sin and he did wrong. Although all those things were going on, we need to look at the full Scripture. Look at what the Bible says. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. Notice how she's there in the first. And the name of the other was Peniah. And Peniah had children, but Hannah had no children. As we saw that he was the son of Jerom, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, as we saw that he was a son of a patriarch, we must also know this. What's the phrase that we use here in the South or in the United States? Monkey see, monkey do, right? And I believe with all of my heart that the children of Israel loved Abraham so much that they were constantly calling him our father Abraham. He was the patriarch. Even Jesus told them, he said, before Abraham was, I am. You know what I mean? He told them before all of that stuff. He, Jesus saying, I was before him. But they loved their patriarch so much that they monkey see, and many of them monkey do. 
They followed that. And we know what happened. What happened with Abraham? What's one of the biggest things about Abraham? Besides being the father of many nations and his children being as the number of the sands of the sea, he did not wait on God for the promise that was told to him. And what did he do? He took the handmaid of Sarah, his wife. He conceived a child with her because he thought Sarah would never have a child and she is barren. Now let's put this together and look at Elkanah and Hannah and Peniah. According to the scripture, it seems to give us the indication that Hannah was Elkanah's first wife. But because she could not bear children, because the scripture says that the womb of hers was shut up by the Lord, because that's what they pronounced on her, then they, they, we seem to think and look at this and go, well, he married Peniel because he wanted descendants and he wanted children. And he did that. Not that it's right. Not that it was right, because listen, when Abraham did it, it wasn't right either, Brother Bill. But he did. But he loved Hannah. And I believe that he loved Hannah, and the reason that she's mentioned first is because that's his wife. But he brought in another, and they had children. And you say, well, that fixed the problem, didn't it? No, it did not fix the problem. Look at this next. It says, and this man, Elkanah, went up out of his city yearly to worship and sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, the high priest during that time, the son's name were Hophni and Phinehas. I can always remember that because my kids used to watch a cartoon called Phineas and Ferb, right? Hophni and Phineas, the priests of the Lord. Look, they were there also. So get this mental picture in your head. Get, let, the, let the Lord paint this picture. Here is Elkanah. Here is his wife, Peniah. Here is his wife, Hannah. Here's Peniah with all of the children, the sons and the daughters that she has born to uh, uh, honor and glorify their family. And, and Elkanah's coming. He's got sacrifices for all of them. He's got everything ready to worship the Lord as they're going to do every year. And we understand when they would come and worship before the Lord every year, most of the time what we're dealing with here is what was called past over in the Bible. And they're coming together into Jerusalem and they're going to worship the Lord. And as they worship the Lord together, he's got all the sacrifices that every one of his kids need and his family needs. The Bible says as they come to this place at Shiloh, as they enter into this place where the tabernacle of God is, that Eli the high priest is there. So God puts us into that picture. Can't you see us? Are we walking together and we're going and got our family? Can't you see that God shows us right there and the two sons of Eli were there, but the two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of the high priest, which were acting as priests in that day, they're also there. So God puts them and interjects them in there because he has to, because we have to understand this. Look at the next verse. It says, and when the time was that Elkanah uh, offered, excuse me, and when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Peniah his wife and to all her sons and daughters portions. Everything that was done. It says, but unto Hannah, he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah. <laughs> it says, but the Lord had shut up her womb. It says, and her adversary also provoked her sore for to make her fret, because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she, Peniah, provoked her, Hannah. And therefore Hannah wept, and she did not eat. Then said Elkanah to her husband, or excuse me, her husband to her, Hannah, why weepest thou? And why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? Am I not better to thee than ten sons? What's great about this scripture is that every year this man went to worship before the Lord. Every year. If there's one thing that we can see in this guy, well, if there's two things. First of all, he had two wives and he shouldn't have had that, but he constantly worshiped the Lord. He constantly. And this guy could look at it all and go, Lord, I'm serving you. I worship you. I give you of the best that I have. Why? Why can't my wife Hannah have a child? Hannah could have spoken to the Lord and said, Lord, we come here every year doing the same thing. Why can't we have a child? Why can't I have a child. Penia, on the other end, is going, ha, 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 I have children and you don't. 
poking on her, prodding her, and being no more like the devil than she can actually be because she is called in the terms in this scripture the adversary. And that is the name for Satan, the adversary. You know, I can remember when me and Patty first got married and we talked about having children and we would pray. And God, we always did from the beginning of it all, prayed about, Lord, if you give us children, you know, Lord, we promise you, you know, we'll serve you, we'll raise them up in what the scriptures call the admonition of the Lord. And we can remember praying and, and we were never having children. We were like, we couldn't have children like at the beginning of it all. And it wasn't years that went by, but it was some time that went by. And I'll never forget. I'll never forget. And I was like, Lord, and y'all can look at me pious and holy all you want to, but I am a fleshly person just like you. And I can remember praying prayers, Lord, on the way to work. Lord, what more? I mean, I preach for you all the time. I mean, Lord, I've been in evangelism forever. Lord, everybody that I know, I tell them about you. You know, Lord, and, and this is what I did. I said, Lord, everybody, and Patty said the same thing. She said, why, Steve, does it seem like everybody else around us is having kids and even having children like at young ages and all this stuff? And, and we, we were, I was going, Lord, everyone else is like fertile myrtle, you know, and they're all having babies and all this stuff. And I'm sitting over here, and we're praying, and I'm trying to help my wife, and her heart's broken and stuff, and we're waiting on the Lord and waiting on the Lord and waiting on the Lord, right? And I know you don't do that. I know that's just me and Patty that have done that before, to where we try to stake claim in our prayers because of what we've done for the Lord, when that would be like comparing your righteousness to filthy rags. And the Bible teaches that Hannah didn't do that, and even Elkanah didn't do that. But just because you're righteous and just because you worship the Lord every day of your life, listen to me, that doesn't mean that you're exempt. That doesn't mean that you're exempt from something going wrong or problems happening. Just because you're a priest or a prophet of the Lord, that doesn't mean that your wife will not run away. We know of the scripture in the Bible where a man who is a prophet of the Lord, that Hosea, his wife, Gomer, she went and played the harlot against him and committed adultery. He was not exempt because he was a prophet. And we are not exempt. None of us are. And looking at this, Elkanah worshiped all the time. And sometimes we're tempted to go, Lord, I do all these things. Lord, I'm a Christian. I do this and I do that. Why? Why, Lord? And even David said this. Why do the heathen rage? Why do they have all of these things? And here we are. We don't have anything. I can remember being a young preacher and hearing a preacher man tell us one time. He said, you know, I I remember pulling up and he had like a, was it a Ford Pinto? He said, I can remember pulling up at the red light. and That thing, he said, it was so loud that even the radio wouldn't cover up the engine messing up. He said, I can remember pulling up, and there was a young guy that pulled up right next to me in a brand new vehicle. And he said, I'm just going to tell you, I was fleshly, and I just said, Lord, why? You know, I'm out here doing ministry, and I can't even hardly get to the places that I need to get to. And there's that. You know what? That's our selfishness. Because what we think is, is that, We're children of the king. We don't deserve to go through that. But sometimes, listen to me, sometimes we go through hardships and we go through trials because God is strengthening you. God is tempering you. God is making you stronger and to do that. And I don't know about y'all, but there's sometimes I want to tell him, I'm okay, I'm strong enough. You know what I mean? You've quenched me 400 times. I'm done, you know. I'm strong enough. But evidently he knows that I'm not and he continues to do that. You know, this year... In March, being 20 years, some of the hardest things. Being a pastor, and please don't take this the wrong way. I am not complaining at all, at all. But it's harder now being here for this long than it was when I first came. And the reason is because you didn't really know everybody then. And now, my friends, that always encouraged and always just kept going on and on, they're, they're getting to heaven faster if you understand what I'm saying. And really all we're doing is just accompanying one another on our road to heaven. That's all we're doing is just worshiping and fellowship, you know. And there are times where I look at some of the other pastors. They're these kind of guys that are like two to three years at the most. And then they go and two to three years. And they're gone and they're gone and they're gone and they're gone. And there's times I told Patty, I was like, I don't know if that would be easier sometimes. You know, just kind of go because you don't get But I desire the closeness. I desire to be the one that sits with you. And listen, it's tough. It's difficult. And I take too much on my own. But this is what I've learned to do, that I am not the one that can carry your burdens or your load. I have to give them to the Lord. And each year, Elkanah came to worship before the Lord. But look at verse number 8 right here. Look at verse number 8. The Bible says, 
Elkanah had a question. <laughs> the Bible says he went, he said, Hannah, he said, why are you weeping? And why are you not eating? And why is your heart grieved? He said, am I not better to you than ten sons? And now put yourself in this picture. All, right, all the guys in here, put yourself into this picture. First of all, especially all you married guys or, or anything like that, you other guys that ain't married, you get forward, and you, you, I promise you, you better not write this down. It's going to happen to you. There are times where you look and you're walking with them, and, and, and you look at your wife and you know something's wrong. And, and it happens to me too. Patty says, are you okay? And, stuff. and you look at her and she says, I'm, I'm fine. And she's just crying, and she's just weeping, and she's doing all this stuff. I think somebody told us this week that they said that they watch sad Hallmark movies sometimes because they just don't want people to know actually what's wrong with them so that they could just go ahead and cry in that movie, and they can blame it on the movie. It's like, wow. You know, it's like, that's crazy. But anyway, but he wants to fix her. Hannah is upset, and she's not exempt from problems and trials. And he looks at her, and he goes, Hannah. He said, why are you not eating? He said, why are you weeping? Why are you crying? Why are you grieved in your heart? So walk with me. Let's look at it. They come to worship the Lord. Here's Elkanah in the middle. We'll put Peniel over here and Hannah there. All the children following behind. All the servants of Elkanah that's coming to worship the Lord. It wasn't always this way. Do you remember in the story about David and Mary? I mean, excuse me, Joseph and Mary? When they came to the city of David, the Bible says that all the world was to be taxed, you know. So every, every man had to go back to his hometown in order to be taxed. And, and Rome thought that we want to blame it on Rome and think they were doing something good. But God was working prophecy because his son was going to be born in Bethlehem. Amen. And so David had to go back to Bethlehem. But it wasn't, it wasn't commanded that all of the family themselves go back. It was commanded that the man that they would return as they would pay their taxes for that. And so they would go back. And we we look at the scripture and understand that Mary went because she was what? She was great with child. She, had, she was already ready to be delivered. You know what I mean? As we would say in the South, she was out here. And so she was ready to be delivered. And we look at it and we go, there was no room found for them in the end. Why? Because everybody came in. Now, take that kind of concept of what happened as they did a census that year. Now, take that same kind of concept and think about Passover. When Passover happened, all of the family would come together and they would come to Jerusalem. And as those Jews would come into Jerusalem, they would bring in the lambs. Josephus, Flavus Josephus, was a first century historian. He wrote about it. He wrote about what the Passover would look like in the days of Jesus. He said that there was so much sacrificing going on at the Temple Mount that the priests would literally take pitchers and buckets of water and pour it on top of the Temple Mount underneath the altar and that all all of the blood from the thousands upon thousands and thousands of Paschal lambs, Passover lambs, would be draining out into the Kidron Valley and would go into the brook Kidron and it would actually stain the waters of that creek. And that's a lot of people that are there. He recorded in, in, in like 70-something A.D. that there were literally like as many as 2 million of the men that would come together. All of these people would come together. So now let's look at this picture of how they've come to Shiloh. The Bible says during this time that there were places of worship, that there was a tabernacle of God in Shiloh where the Bible says they were supposed to be, but then there was a sanctuary of God in Shechem. Okay, Wouldn't you like to live in Shechem? There were these two places. But then you go, well, brother, see, what about Jerusalem? That wasn't until later that God said, that's where I will be worshipped. That's where Solomon will build the house of God unto my name. And people that meet me will meet me there. And it takes me to the place, church, to where you find out that all this stuff's going on. And they would go to Shiloh and they would go to Shechem. And all these people would come with all of their possessions and they would celebrate the Passover meal. And as they would sit down at that Passover meal, think about that night. Think about what they would do. They would sit down with their family. They would read the Hallel, the blessings of the book of Psalms in chapter 113 through 118. They would praise the Lord with every breath that they had. They would say, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and enter his courts with praise. They would lay out the four glasses of wine that would be shared with all of the family. Now before you think that it was Boone's Farm or Mad Dog 2020 and it was all this high potent alcohol and stuff, it was fruit of the vine that was fermented but yet it would be one third of the wine and then the rest of it, excuse me, one fourth 
three-fourths of it wine, and the rest three-fourths they would fill with water. And the reason they did that was because it was not to be intoxicating wine, because all of the family were to partake of that cedar or Passover cedar or Passover meal, and so all of the kids would do it too. And it wasn't about drinking it up to get drunk. But it was about being praise and honoring to God that he can take something such as the grape that's the sugar on the inside, that has the yeast on the shell on the outside, and that it could be crushed under the foot of men and women, but yet God would take the yeast and take the sugar and do something and transform it into something sweeter and tasted sweeter and produce the sugar alcohol in that. And what he was trying to show us, even at the wedding of the Cana of Galilee, when he did the miracle where he turned the water in the water, It was all to point to his salvation. He can take ordinary, nasty, and he can make it sweet and fermented and brand new all together. It wasn't to get drunk. It wasn't to be having a good time and to keep the party rolling. It was the fact that God will put into us what will cleanse us. And when they placed wine into their water, it was to purify it and to make it drinkable for all. But when they did it at Passover... They did it in celebration that God has been with us, that God has blessed us, that God has done all of these things. I can't keep it in here anymore. But God has done all of these things. And it was to be worship. It was to be a time where they praised Him. And they would, they would take the bitter herbs at that setter meal, that Passover meal, and they would get a big old handful of them And dip them into a bowl of salt water. And then they would eat it. They would take a boiled egg that was a representation of new birth. And they would dip it in salt water. And they would eat it. They would take the roasted lamb. And dad would dip it in salt water. And they would eat it. So why did they do something like that? It was to remind them of the bitter tears of the wilderness. They would constantly do these things because the Jewish people were all about signs. They were all about symbolism. And what a wonderful thing it is because sometimes we don't understand what God's doing unless we have an illustration. And they're doing all of these things and Hannah is there and she's trying to worship the Lord. Can you see the picture? Hannah's trying to worship the Lord. Knowing, knowing that Penny is on the other side, constantly prodding her, gloating about her children that she has. And there's Elkanah in the middle. And Elkanah may be just like me and just going, we just come here, praise the Lord. And he may be like me and he looks over at Hannah and he goes, Hannah, why are you crying? Why are you not eating? Why are you grieved in your heart? And then he does what men try to do. He tries to fix her. (laughs) And sometimes women don't want to be fixed. Can you ladies say an amen? They don't want to be fixed. They know you can't fix it. And he looks at her and he goes, Hannah, am I not better than ten sons? I mean, I'm going to, what he's trying to say there, he's trying to say, Brother Brent, I'm going to be with you always. And you'll never be alone. And he even showed it in his act of worship. Because as they came together at the uh, Passover, and then the Pentecost was going to start, They constantly laid out their inheritance, Brother Jack, to their family. They would talk about how God had blessed them. And then Elkanah would speak to his sons and tell how that he would bless them. And he would leave them this. And he'll leave this one that. And he'll give this one this. And there's Hannah. And Hannah sees that Elkanah is telling the sons this. But the Bible says that when he turned to Hannah, he gave her a more worthy portion. He gave her a double portion. Now this... If you look at scripture in Leviticus, was not to be that way. Because who was supposed to get it? The firstborn son was supposed to get the double portion. But Elkanah loved his wife. And he loved her so much that he was grieving because of what she was going through. And he looked at her and he said, Hannah, why are you not eating? Why are you crying? Why is your heart broken? And the thing about it is, is that if we were honest this morning, just like every Sunday... Some people come in here, and they're Hannah. Brother Bill, they are torn, and they are ripped to shreds. Some people come in here, and God forbid, they're Penia. And they're gloating about everything God's done for them. 
And in certain ways, they're rubbing it into everyone else because they're doing it with their pride, and that's sinful. And then there's some, that Brother Brandon, that come in, and they're just Elkanah. I've just come here to worship you, Lord. I've come here because I've come here every year. I come to worship before you. And they're totally blind to what's going on around them. <clears throat> totally blind to the fact because we're, we're worship-minded and we sometimes, listen to me, we can't see there's a Hannah in the service. And a Hannah in the service is saying, you know what, I might have thought I was exempt from all this stuff, but I'm not. And how do you reach all of that at the same time? Only God's Spirit can do it. Here's the second thing this morning. And evidently we need to fast forward and go quick. But there's no exclusions. And what I mean by that is that there's no just pinpointing one thing that excluded, that, that's just done away with. Look, look, at, look with me at verse 9. It says, So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh, and after that they had drunk. And now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by the, house, uh, excuse me, by the post of the temple of the Lord, and she was in bitterness of soul, and prayed unto the Lord, and wept sore. And she vowed a vow, and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou will indeed look upon the affliction, or look on the affliction of thy handmaid, and remember me, and forget not thy handmaid, but will give unto thy handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life. And there shall no razor come upon his head, and it shall come to pass. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it came to pass, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli, he marked her mouth, he watched her. Now Hannah, she spake in her heart, but only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought that she had been drunken. And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be drunken? Put away thy wine from thee. And Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Look at that. It says, Count not thy handmaid for a daughter of Satan or Belial. says, For out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hitherto. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked of him. And she said, Let thine handmaid find grace in thy sight. So the woman went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. Let's take a time out this morning just to look at Hannah for a moment. Look at verse number 7, and you'll see again that she was grieved and that she was weeping sore and that she wasn't eating. She was at that place to where she was so broken about something that food didn't satisfy her. Her husband's words didn't satisfy her. And so she was not satisfied with anything going, around, going on around her. She was broke. And see this picture of this woman as they're all trying to worship and they're all trying to praise the Lord. Here she is. She's broken. But then the Bible says in verse number 9 that she stands up in Shiloh. It says that Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh. And look at these last words, and after they had drunk. That doesn't mean and after everyone had sat around and drinking all the wine in a drunken stupor. What it means is, is after the Passover, they would have these four glasses that were out before them. And as each Hallel, each praise of the Lord came, then they would all take part in the first cup. Then the last one, do you remember what Jesus said? He said, I will not drink this with you, the fruit of the vine with you, until I drink it with you in my Father's house. New, amen. That's good. That's really, really good. And so if you think about it, he was telling them as they were ending all of the Passover, and here Hannah is, after she knew, she went through the ceremonial worship. She went through what everybody came there for. She honored God, Brother Jack, in doing what she knew was right by coming year after year after year. But Brother Bill, when that ended... Hannah stood up. Hannah began to walk around there at Shiloh at the tabernacle of God. And as she began to walk around, the Bible says right there that Eli the priest sat by a post of the temple. This dude in the Bible was always sitting down. You want to look up lazy in the Bible? Eli was the laziest priest that there absolutely was. He never, we don't see, even later on in life, he's sitting at the temple or the tabernacle again, and he hears bad news and all this stuff. We're going to talk about it, but all, he just wasn't doing it. And so he's watching people. And God even gets on to this guy and makes sure that he needs to reprimand his children. But the Bible says in verse 10 that Hannah, when she stood up, she did something. <laughs> she, I believe, and I hope you do too, that she worshiped God with a real heart there at Passover. But I also hope that you know that when it was over with, she became real. She, when her husband said, why are you crying and all this, and ain't I better than ten you know, sons, when she really wanted to look at him and go, no, you ain't. 
you know what I mean? And you, you ladies can say amen if you want to on that. I don't know if it'd be appropriate. But she wanted to say, you can't fix my problem. She stood up and she became real with God. And she started praying to the Lord. Because her soul was bitter. Now listen to me. Before you judge Hannah or before you judge me, make sure, make sure that you know that you would do this too. The Bible says that the Lord had shut up her womb. It said it twice. But the way that it said it was not, I, the Lord God, has shut up her womb. The way that it was said was in the storyline that evidently this is what Peniah constantly reminded Hannah of, is that you'll never have a child. You'll never have a child. Because God is creator of the body, evidently God forgot to include all the things that Hannah needed in order to have a child, and that's the way they made her feel. That's why it says that. Because God didn't shut up her womb if she had a child later. Amen. God didn't do all those things, and it's not God's fault. It's not like God comes down here and goes, you're going to have children, and you're not going to have children. And I'm going to pick you, and you can pick you, and pick you, and pick you, and do all these things. What happens is, is that when we can't have that, and we're needing God, and we're waiting on God for the glory of God to be revealed into our lives, we need to understand that we just need to be patient in the waiting room of prayer. And all of a sudden, Hannah was in bitterness of soul, which we all can get sometimes. I'll never forget friend of mine I played football with, his father passed away when he was 16 years old. It was one of the hardest things he went through until he was married for five years, had three children, and his wife was in a horrible accident right in front of uh, where Gardendale First Baptist is now on that main uh, interstate, I-65, and her Explorer, Ford Explorer flipped over. And I'll never forget going into that hospital room and putting my hands on her and praying for her. God, please heal her as she was in her halo and all of this stuff. And God did heal her, but he gave her an ultimate healing by taking her home but I'll never forget my friend I prayed I said God you can't take his wife his dad's already gone and early and just Lord what's going on and the the little girl was turning one years old in in the hospital and stuff and I was like Lord what's going on please help this guy and I was like I don't know what's going on and then I'll never forget being in the waiting room when they came out and said that she's gone and he put his fingers up and he was like God why would you do this he was angry with God he was in bitterness of soul But don't judge that because we're in the flesh. And he was in bitterness of soul because the flesh was hurting so much. I don't know if you would do this or not, but I'm going to tell you something. Some of y'all, I wouldn't want y'all to come up here and kick this thing. Some of you don't need to come by and stub your toe on this pulpit because I don't want to hear the bitterness of soul that comes out of your mouth or whatever else. Right? So many times we look at this and you go... How can Hannah be in bitterness of soul? It's okay. Hebrews tells us later to not let the root of bitterness take place. Every one of us sometimes have sprouts of bitterness. Every one of us can go through something at times in our lives and go, Lord, why? What's going on? And we have that bitterness of soul. But Hannah took her bitterness and turned it into prayer. Hannah took the bitterness that was in her soul and wept it out on her face. It just poured out on her face. And the Bible says that she wept sore. I I don't know how you look at the scriptures and some of the words sometimes when it talks about weeping sore. I even try to tie that other word of having a sore, like a sore that she's weeping so bad that it's almost like it's a wound that's wounded her. And she's crying and the Bible says, In the next verse, look at verse 11, that she begins to get real before the Lord and she vows a vow. She makes a promise. It says that she vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou will indeed look on the affliction of thy handmaid and remember me. And look at these words again. And forget not thy handmaid. I want you to see that word. In in other translations, it's translated as servant or even slave. It says, and remember me and forget not thine handmaid. Look, it says, but wilt give unto thy handmaid a man-child. She's constantly, she's saying, Lord, if you'll give me a child, a son, I'll do this. Now, this is not Hannah saying, God, if I give you $100, you give me 1000 This is not bargaining. This is not her and God saying, Hannah, do you want this or what's behind door number one? It's not that. It's not bargaining. We don't bargain with God. This is her consecrating and centralizing and focusing her prayer by saying, God, if you choose to do it, if you choose to answer in this way, I promise you one thing, and that is you will get all the glory. 
that I will not take the glory, but you will get all the glory. And notice three times in that scripture, she said, handmade, handmade, handmade. She's, she's not coming in boldness or in some kind of arrogancy. She's coming and saying, Lord, if you will look upon your servant... If you will look upon your slave, and what she's saying is, is she's saying, Lord, I serve you. Every year I come, the same time, every year, year by year by year. She's saying, Lord, will you just, if you see fit to look upon your handmaid. She said, I promise you this, God. I promise you that no razor will touch his head. She's saying, I will declare and I will allow him. Lord, he'll be a Nazarite unto you. He'll be a person that's set apart unto you. And we know that her child was set apart. He was the first priest and prophet. I mean, excuse me, he's the first judge and the prophet of Israel. And you look at that life. Listen, there's no exclusions. The Bible says that she came humbly before the Lord. Here, here, here's some of the last things I wanted to share with you. Think about the promise that she makes. Hannah's promise is not, Lord, if you'll get me out of this, I'll get me out of the next one. That's not what she says. She's saying, God, I, if you give me a son, everyone will know it's a miracle. Everyone will know it's your hand. Everyone will know because I promise that you'll get the glory. And now look at Eli. Let's walk through this quick. Look at Eli, the high priest. Remember, he's sitting down because he's lazy. He's always sitting down. The high priest really never sit down. And that's why I say he's lazy because every time we see him, he's sitting. And you think about this. The high priest was always working and, and serving the Lord. every time In Passover, especially. Everything. And he's sitting. And the Bible says that Hannah's over there doing this. She's going... And people probably think she's crazy. I, I, when I go backwards in my mind as a little kid sitting on the pews at the church, mom and dad would give me crayons, and I remember drawing stuff, you know. I, I was telling this morning, I remember drawing, you know, I'd, I'd do like John and J.C. does, and I'd, I'd draw pictures of the preacher, and bring what J.C. brings me stuff, and she goes, I made this for you, brother Stephen. I look at it, and I go, oh, that's beautiful. What is it? Because <laughs> you, you have no idea. I said, what's that say? She says, God loves you. And I was like, okay, I'll take your word for it. You know, I can, but if, if they had to endure, if, if JC's enduring all the things that I endured to hear that preacher back in those days too, they've worked hard, okay? I can remember sitting in church and, and people would shout, man, they'd praise the Lord. I can remember people coming down before the message was over with, couldn't even get through with the message, and people would be in the altar. And I'd be that kid drawing color, and I'd look up, and they're doing all that stuff, and I'd go back, you know. I can remember my mom and dad and my uncle used to come and sing down here at the, the B&K or B&B supermarket down there, storefront church back then, Church of God. Back in the days where the Church of God, the ladies wore their dresses all the way down, and the old ladies had the beehives, you know, the, the buns and stuff. And they'd get so excited about God that things started falling down. You know what I mean? The hair started falling down, praising the Lord and stuff. And as a kid at the Church of God, I can remember as a kid, I was going, and, and, and trying to draw in that. It was tough for me, you know. So I, I needed extra credit for drawing and with all of everything going on. I, was, I remember it, man. They would praise God. And I'll never forget growing up seeing those ladies and those men that would stand up there and nothing was coming out. They were having a time with the Lord and they couldn't say the words. Couldn't get them out. Hannah's doing this and Eli's going. He's marked her mouth. He's trying to figure out what she's trying to say. And he comes over to her. Look at this. Here's the last thing. There's no, no, no exclusion. He comes over to her and he puts her with all of the other people. And he says this in the next verse. I think it's in verse number 12. He jumps to the conclusion, or verse 13 it might have been. It says that he said, how long are you, are you going to be drunken? Put away your wine. He, said, he thought she was drunk. Now, how many of you today, if you were in prayer up here, and I came to you and I said, you know what? You need to put your wine away. You've been drinking too much today. You know what I mean? If you weren't saying anything. You would think, how dare you say something like that to me? But you remember, God interjected people into our text this morning. By the name of Hophni and Phinehas and Eli. God told Eli, he said, your sons are a disgrace to the house of God. They are causing women to come to the house of God and to become drunk. And they are having relationships with them, committing adultery with them. And I'm not going to stand for it any longer. And you need to speak to them. And Eli did not do it. He did not reprimand his children. And what happened? They died. 
The Bible says a servant came and told Eli about their death. And imagine this, Eli was sitting on the wall because he was always sitting. And as he heard the news about his sons, he fell backward and he was gone. He's dead. So now we understand. Eli was accustomed in Shiloh of women doing those crazy things like that. And he accused Hannah of being a regular child of the devil. Instead of her, she said, no, my Lord, don't think me to be as one of those daughters of Belial. But I'm a woman of sorrowful spirit. She said, I have not put any drink or strong drink in me. I've not done that. But she said, what I'm doing is, is I'm pouring my soul out to the Lord. She wasn't drinking. She was pouring her heart out to the Lord. And all of a sudden, we see that God did something with her. The last thing is this, is that there's no exceptions. No exceptions. The Bible says, Hannah made a promise to God that, Lord, if you choose to look on me and give me and answer my prayer... I promise you I'll honor you. And there's no exceptions. If you've made a vow to the Lord in prayer time to consecrate the prayer, not to bargain chip with God, but to consecrate the prayer, you better keep it. You better keep it. If you've made a promise to God to give something, to give of your life, to give somebody something, you need to do it. I, I, I'm going to tell you something. Now, this sounds foolish and sounds very, very small in it all. I have a Bible that was a, a Bible that was given to me, and I loved that thing. Man, it was a study Bible. It had all this stuff in it. And I'll never get a brand new Christian. Bold and brash Christian. How dare that person do that? They asked me, Brother Bill said, I like that Bible. Can you, can you get one? And I said, no, you can't get them anymore. And they just went, oh, And I know what that means. That means, I like that one. And you can't get them anymore. That means they won't mind. Right? All right? And so all of a sudden, the Lord said, give them that Bible. I was like, I'm not giving them that Bible. It's the only one they got. The Lord, I was arguing with the Lord, not bargaining. He was like, give them the Bible. And I was like, Lord, this is the only one. And so I I didn't do it. I didn't go here. Because the Bible says you shouldn't give grudgingly. (laughs) I wanted to go here. But I gave the Bible. And then turned around and somebody fell on eBay and gave me mine back. Amen? So if you think about it, what she's saying is is she made a promise. No, there's no exceptions. That doesn't mean that you can get out of it. Look at what it says. We're going to close. The Bible says in verse 19, And they rose up early in the morning and they worshipped before the Lord. And then they returned home and came to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah knew his wife, Hannah. And it says, And the Lord remembered her. And when it came to pass, when the time was come about after Hannah had conceived that she bare a son, and she called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him from the Lord. God was faithful to Hannah, faithful to her prayer, and he gave her a son named Samuel, which means I've heard from the Lord. You know, when you, when you stop and think about all the things that we've talked about, and let's pull it all together before we have our invitation time and our prayer time together. There's things in this scripture that we need to understand and that we need to see. The first one is this. The truest resort or the truest place that we can find help in our greatest time of need is at the throne of God's grace. Elkanah could not help his wife. Penny, I definitely could not help her. The high priest Eli, which she should, if it had been the right way, she should have brought her petition to him or to one of the sons, but Brother Bill, she couldn't even go to them because of the way they were living. And Hannah is in worship. And can you imagine her fretting inside the Bible, even use the word that she would fret and to worry and to be anxious about it, that I think it was this, that she was trying to figure out, where can I go? Who will understand me? Who can I talk to? And you know, that's the same thing that happens in our life. In our lives, we kind of get to that place where Our husband can't help us or our wife can't help us. Our kids don't understand us. Our parents don't understand us. Even the pastor doesn't understand. There are times where you must know in your deepest and greatest need, you can always go to the throne of grace. You can always go to the throne to find the help that you need. Number two is that the deeper your trouble and the sore that we weep, the more fervently that we should pray. The more more fervently. And what I mean by that is that when, when you're in your deepest sorrow, the best thing you can do is pray. And this is what we do as Christians. We go, well, I'll just pray for you. It's not just praying. 
that we, we use it as it's like our, our last resort or our, you know what I mean? Well, done everything else, I guess I'll pray. I, I hear Christians say that. That's our greatest thing that we can do. That's the first thing that we can do. That's not like plan B. That's plan A, always plan A. And in our deepest trouble and when we're weeping the most, we need to turn the prayers up even more. Speak to him. Even when you don't understand what you're going through, speak to him. Number three, it's right and it's okay to make a promise to the Lord. It actually focuses and centralizes and consecrates the blessings that will eventually bring him glory. Because what you're doing when you're promising God in your prayer time, when you're vowing unto him what you will do if he chooses to answer, if he does whatever he's going to do, is that you're always saying, God, no matter what it is, I'm going to reflect it back to you. That it will never be about me. It will always be about you. Number four, we should never forget our promises. And we need to be very careful that we keep them and perform them. If you've made a promise, Ecclesiastes says, don't vow a vow and not keep it. He says, if you vow a vow, then you need to defer to pay it. In other words, you need to keep that promise you've committed. Number five, when God answers us favorably, then we need to make sure that we praise him. <laughs> we need to make sure of that. Did you know Elkanah later on in the scriptures went to the house of the Lord and he was going to dedicate the child and do all that? And Hannah said, let me wean him and I'll do all this and I promise I'm going to give him. She was the one that made the promise to the Lord. And she was the one that went back to the house of God and praised God for it. And here's the last one. When we can't find the words to speak outwardly, that doesn't mean that God can't hear us. Please remember that. If, you're, if you've not been able to write all these down, they're on the Bible version app on the study notes today. You can go back and see them. I, I made a point to put them on there. But if you don't hear anything else, please listen to this. When you can't find the words to say outwardly and verbally, that doesn't mean that God won't hear you. That doesn't mean that you have to speak out in a loud, audible voice. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter number 8 and verse 26, it says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities. For when we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Paul tells us in this scripture, and I don't want to burst your prayer bubble. Paul tells us in this scripture, Brother Patrick, it says we don't even know what we should pray for. For when we don't know what we should pray or how we should pray, he says, don't worry about that. You can't figure out the words to say. He says, it's okay. Because the Holy Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit that lives inside of you, will make intercession. You know what that means? That's when I'm so broken and I can't find the words to tell the Lord. The Holy Spirit takes my spirit within me and communes together. And that the Holy Spirit of God, Brother Jack, goes before the Lord and translates every brokenness in my heart and tells Him. And my Father understands everything going on within me because he's placed his spirit inside of me. Paul says when we do not know what we should pray for God says it's okay to not figure out the words. You know in prayer time on Wednesday nights we have, we'd have prayer meetings we haven't had many in a while because we try to reserve it for the youth and the students and uh, children to have their classes and stuff on Wednesday night. But I can remember years ago, standing in this church on a Wednesday night in prayer meeting, there would be nine of us in the middle of the aisle, and that was it. And they'd all join hands, and we'd pray together. And throughout the years, I've heard people like Lovell Thomas, who is with the Lord now. When we'd ask for prayer requests, she'd stand up with a deep voice, beautiful purple dress on, and we'd go, Brother Steve, please pray for my children. Brother Bill, you remember, you can hear it. Please pray for my grandchildren. That they would know the Lord. Brother Roy Talbert, who went through our dialysis three times a week. Man, a soldier for the Lord, him and his wife. He would stand and never ask prayer for him and what he was going through in dialysis, did he? No. He would ask prayer for other people and people that he was next to in dialysis. Moms and dads coming down to the altar praying. But nothing ever struck my heart more than when I understood something later on. We'd have prayer meeting and I'd say, what can I pray for you about? I want to pray for you. I want to know what I can specifically pray for. You know, 
I don't, I'm not, I want to be nosy. I ain't going to put it on Facebook. I just want to pray for you. I want to tell, I want to make sure I'm telling God the right thing that you are asking for. And I'll never forget. People would go, Brother Steve, and they'd raise their hands. I have an unspoken. Brother Steve, I have an unspoken. And in my younger years, I was fleshly. And I'd tell Patty, why can't you tell it? Just speak it. Let's speak it to the Lord. That's what I would say. Speak it. Tell the Lord. And it wasn't until later that I realized what was going on. It wasn't until later that I realized how foolish and young that I was. Because what they couldn't say, God already understood. And the reason that it was unspoken was because they were so broken about it that they couldn't put it into words. And as a young preacher, I would think, just tell us. Just tell us. And that was my... That was my strength trying to say, we can help you. We can help you. But they were saying, Elkanah can't help me. Peniel can't help me. Eli can't help me. Steve can't help me. What I need is God to help me. You hear me? I need God to help me. And they would go, that one I spoke And so now every time I hear that, my heart bleeds and goes straight to that. And I go, God, whatever they're going through, I don't have to know. Lord, I know I can't help because they would have asked me for help. Will you please help them? You help them. Remember this if you don't remember anything. A wordless prayer is not a worthless prayer. Just because you can't find the words to say, that doesn't mean it's worthless. With all the stuff that's going on around us and in our church, I have found myself in these last 22 days of our prayer time together not having the appropriate words or the words to really talk. I'm reading my devotion. I'm trying to gather the information and I'm trying to pray those specific prayers for our church. But I'm finding out that I, I, when I get through, it's like I go, Lord, did I rush through? Did I, did I, I didn't know what to say. I'm praying the same thing for people every day. This one needs healing. This one needs healing. And the next day, I get another text and another text. Before I walked out here, of all the things going on before I walked there, I have a pastor friend whose wife is in the hospital now because of this, and she's older. And it's tearing them apart. It's hurting. And I'm going, Lord. I... But my wordless prayers, they're not worthless. And neither are yours because the Holy Spirit's moving. Hebrews says this, in the moments of our great sorrow, we can realize how great our Savior is. He said, let us come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy look at these words and find grace to help in time of need isn't that amazing and you know I know that you think this is a big coinky dink also you know what the word Hannah means it means grace Hannah needed grace and you may think today you don't need as much but you need to take a withdrawal of grace today because you know not what tomorrow is you join me in prayer. Listen.